I'm Jesse. I'm Avery. And I'm Jim, and this is Topic Lords, the only place on the internet where you can hear topics discussed. Jesse, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? No and no. Avery, would you like to introduce yourself, or do you have anything to plug? I'm Avery. I make music. Although, I haven't for a while. Go and find me. Have you made any new music since you were last on the show? No, I haven't. Although, I was writing a song recently, and I thought I had hit on something really good. And then I realized that the melody in the song was uh, the Sugar Plum Fairy from Tchaikovsky. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kosher. That's that's in um, in the public domain now. You can just give it some inter- an interesting new chord progression, and then it's a new song. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's not the coolest uh, thing to accidentally be ripping off. <laughs> Fair. Jesse, I, I just wanted to acknowledge I moved on r- rapidly because it fit the the cadence of the of what you had said, but I really appreciate how rapidly you shut down the whole idea of introducing yourself. Good good on you. No problem. This is especially interesting for me being as I I don't think I've ever met you before. So it's <laughs> a completely mysterious person on the other line. Uh, I am a listener to the show who insisted that he be allowed to be on the show. So far, I haven't said no to anybody who wanted to be on the show, (laughs) but that's only going to work so many times. Like, if you want to be on the show, ask soon instead of later, because once a bunch of people do it, I'll get sick of it. You guys ready to start with some topics? Unless we want to continue to talk about how mysterious Jesse is. Okay. We'll we'll find out even more mysterious facts later on. Uh, Jesse, your first topic here is math problems that are easy to explain, but unsolved or unsolvable. Yeah, I think this is a sort of interesting phenomenon, right? So everyone knows that there are lots of unsolved math problems, uh, but some of them are unsolvable in like a technical sense, which is a, a whole other interesting thing. You mean like proven unsolvable? Right, exactly. And so so is it not considered at that point that, that the problem is effectively solved at that point if you've proven it unsolvable? I guess that's a question about the semantics of the word solve, right? It's also a philosophy of math question, right? Right, yeah. So there are some unprovable, for instance, there are some unprovable conjectures that are considered to have an answer anyway. So something could be unprovable in a given axiomatic system, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have an answer. That means that system can't provide you with an answer. And the interesting thing about these, you might assume that unsolved math problems must be like really complicated and only mathematicians could even understand what the problem is uh, or similarly for these unsolvable problems. But actually lots of them are like you can explain to someone who knows very little mathematics in one or two sentences, which I think is interesting. Uh, a good example of one of these, you know, if there are more subsets of one set than another, does that mean the first set must be bigger than the other one? And it turns out that that's like both that and its negation are compatible with the rest of mathematics. Yeah. How do you feel about the Goldbach conjecture? That seems easy enough to explain to someone, but and it also seems obviously true, but it isn't proven. Does that fall for you in this kind of category? Right. I think that's the first category, right? Of One that's just clearly has some solution, but we don't know it, even though it seems pretty simple. Can one of you two explain what that is? I should have asked one of you. I'm sorry. I should have asked one or the other, not both. Falling down in your hosting jobs. 
Uh, Goldbach conjecture is that every every even number is the sum of two primes. So four is two plus two, six is three plus three, eight is three three plus five, ten is three plus seven, or five plus five, and so on. QED and so on up to <laughs> four. What is this? What's after trillion? <laughs> I think it's quadrillion. I have dyslexia, so this is like f- four followed by more than a. More, more, more zeros than would be in a trillion. Um, <laughs> so it's been verified for that large amount, but there's no proof, which means a there's no guarantee that this is always going to be the case, even though it seems like it probably is going to be. And more importantly, there's no uh, like a proof in math. Oftentimes, will tell you why something is true, or why it must why why it couldn't be otherwise. Yeah. So we don't we don't have that, and it's an easy to explain problem. But but like for practical numbers, like if you're at the grocery store and you need to know if any given like the even number on that can of soup can be the sum of two primes, then you know that it can. Yes. If uh, yeah. If if in, if the, before they let you check out, they're like, okay, but you gotta you gotta you have to tell me whether or not all of these even numbers are the sum of some primes. Then you know that that's a thing that you can do. <laughs> right. Oftentimes, the cutoff that's used is like. If we've checked up to the number of like atomic particles in the universe, <laughs> then that has to be enough. Like, there's no situation where you would need to know about a number bigger than that, right? And that number is not actually that large. It's like ten to the eighty or something. There's there's these situations in mathematics where you where there are like large gap. Like for instance, there are large gaps in the primes, so you can prove that there's like arbitrarily large distances between prime numbers so there's got to be you can you can you can demonstrate that there must be you know like 10,000 numbers where there are no prime numbers uh and if you were just like if you were assigned to just count numbers and in catalog prime numbers when you hit one of these gaps you might think to yourself oh i must have hit like the last prime number yeah you ran out yeah but really it's just that you hit an astronomically large gap and so there's always the possibility, if you don't know why something is the case in, especially in number theory like this, where you, you know, you might, it might be the case that for some reason or other, the first 10 quadrillion even numbers are the sum of two primes, but then the 10 quadrillion and second number is not for some reason. But then the rest of them are. Yeah. It's very highly unlikely that that's the case, but like. <laughs> right. There's also the problem of just pushing out the bounds is not always easy. There's a famous anecdote from Erdős about how if aliens invade the Earth and they demand to know the fifth diagonal Ramsey number, we should dedicate all resources to computing it. Uh-huh. If they ask for the sixth diagonal Ramsey number, we should dedicate all resources to killing the aliens. <laughs> but another great one is um, everyone understands basically what like a closed curve is. You can just like a squiggle you can draw on a on a piece of paper, right? I didn't until you just said that. Right. So it just connects back to itself. Uh, and that's all right. And right. the question is like, can you always find four points on the curve that form a square? Th- yeah. The answer seems to be yes, but that's not proved. The, the, the proof to the, um, rectangle version of that is one of my favorite math proofs. It, oh, interesting. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, beautiful and it involves, um, topology which is something you wouldn't think like you wouldn't think that 
you need to talk about three-dimensional surfaces when solving a problem like this, but it turns out talking about projections onto three-dimensional surfaces proves the rectangle version of this, that you can always inscribe a rectangle. There's a great, there are all kinds of different packing problems where you have shapes of one kind and you have to squeeze as many of them as you can into a shape of another kind. And so one genre of that problem is square packing in a square. Mm-hmm. So you ask like, you know, how many unit squares can you pack into a square that is seven by seven or something, right? And so in some cases, it's really obvious. For example, if the big square has a, a number that makes a nice square, right? You know, yeah. sometimes you can completely pack the square, but other times you have a weird number and you have to start jamming them in diagonally and like weird stuff starts happening. And then you find that the optimal numbers are always like, determined by computer search and not known to be optimal and you just have to like i don't know no one can figure out a better one than this like i am doing that right now as part of my job (laughs) interesting (laughs) i am packing i've got these like arc segments and they need to have other identical arc segments packed into them in the most efficient way and i attempted to explain to the people that are asking me to do this that it's an np problem (laughs) it's like i can't i can kind of do it but like it's gonna crash our computers if like if i if i find the best solution to it that's that's sort of a third genre here right because other than unsolved and unsolvable there's also uncomputable right yeah occasionally there's something that seems not too crazy but you can prove that you cannot write a computer algorithm to solve this problem yeah or effectively uncomputable in that you can't write a computer algorithm that does any better than random guessing And for a very large problem space, that, again, means that if there are more possible solutions than particles in the universe, then having the computer randomly guess doesn't, is never going to, like, you're effectively never going to find the solution. You're you're writing code to pack arc segments, you said? Yes. Are these analogous to, like, real world objects that are physically being packed somewhere? Yeah, it's it's a data visualization thing for... uh, I don't know how much I can talk about it. Biotech analysts might might have me killed. Okay, all right. It it it's 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 a data visualization and it involves sort of a weird kind of pie chart thing. Um, the problem is I'm putting in all this work and it's not going to be like the most spectacular outcome. Uh, but if you imagine a pie chart and then you also have to put dots inside the pie chart that signify individual data points. And you want them to like display in the best possible way, given the number of dots and some other ordering you've assigned to the dots. My solution to this was to turn it into a tiling problem, which is a area of mathematics that I find fun, which is where you're given a set of tiles and you're like, lay these tiles to find the algorithm that lays out these tiles such that there aren't any cracks between them. Right. Yeah. But then that just becomes what, what what Jesse's talking about, which is a, a, a packing problem and all all of these packing problems are like NP hard problems, which means the only way to find a, the only way to find a, uh, algorithm that speeds them up would be if it turns out that there is no real difference between problems that can be solved in polynomial time and problems that can't be. Wasn't that already proven false? I, th- I thought I read like five years ago that they proved that um, P was not equal to NP. I mean, people publish such proofs all the time. Whether anybody's got a correct one is a whole other issue. Yeah, it, yeah. it would be a, it would be a 
big, big deal if, if, if uh, that was accepted by the mathematical community. Oh, I think I remember what you're talking about. I think there was uh, a proof that like a reputable mathematician published it, or it might have, was it, it was either P versus NP or it was graph isomorphism. There was some big, big deal thing that somebody proved that like very quickly a bunch of people were like, well, here's where it's wrong. Here's where it's wrong. Like, I see. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> I was, I was at the gym with a friend of mine and I was trying to explain it, explain the graph isomorphism thing to him. And we were both on the treadmill and I was getting more and more excited and leaning closer and closer to him while I was like shouting out exactly what the graph isomorphism, uh, problem is. And then I stepped on the side of the treadmill and went face first down into the treadmill and then was deposited at the bottom of the treadmill and was like disoriented. And I got up and tried to step back on the treadmill (laughs) while it was moving. I I thought you were going to say like you were yelling about the graph isomorphism and then someone tripped the lunk alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It says right there on the wall that like no shouting about math problems. (laughs) Right. Uh, The lunk alarm. Are uh, you guys ready for another topic? Let's do it. Yes, please. Uh, Avery, your topic. Uh, the list of Mr. Potato Head's accomplishments on his Wikipedia page makes him sound like a real person who was perhaps an ambassador. So I'm going to pull this up right now. Uh, if he doesn't have a doctorate, at least, I'm going to be disappointed. Uh, he was the spoke spud for the great um, annual Great American Smokeout. And surrendered his pipe to Surgeon General C. Everett Coop in Washington, D.C. 1985, Mr. Pideta received four postal votes in the run for mayor of Boise, Idaho. Most votes for Mr. Potato Head in the political campaign is verified by the Guinness Book of World Records. In 1995, Mr. Potato Head made his film debut with a, with a leading role in Disney Pixar animation Toy Story. In 1992, he received a special award from the President's Council for his physical fitness. In 1996, Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Potato Head joined the League of Women Voters and their Get Out the Vote campaign. Mr. Potato Head is also the inspiration slash main character for an upcoming film, Potato Headed. Larger than life versions of Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head are guests in the 1980s section of Pop uh, of Pop Century Resort at Walt Disney World in Florida. Mr. and Mrs. Potato has also star in commercials for other brands starting in, in the 2000s. An example is an ad for Lay's Potato Chips where Mr. Potato Head comes home to see Mrs. Potato Head eating them despite being a potato herself. At the end of Mr. Potato at the end Mr. Potato joins in and tells her to keep it their little secret. Keeping cannibalism in the family. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm stuck on the that he got 4 votes in Boise, Idaho for mayor. That's more than most humans have. Yes, and also that he was then there's a there's a he was then inducted into the Guinness Book of World Records, or it was inducted into the Guinness Book of World Records for most votes for Mr. Potato Head in a political campaign. Now, what that says to me is that since this is the the highest number of verified number of votes, that means somewhere some other city he's gotten way more votes than that. Yeah, they just couldn't get a, a Guinness Book of World Records person to come and uh, and certify it. Yeah. Uh, there was a book that I just picked up at, kind of at random in the maid and it was a Twin Galaxies like at the time, our, this is our list of high scores for everything. 
And it became very clear, like we I flipped to like the Super Mario Brothers section and it was just like four pages of people who had maxed out the score counter on Super Mario Brothers. And then at the bottom of the page, there was like 10, like for Super Mario Brothers 2, there were 10 people who were tied as finished the game. Because <laughs> <laughs> Super Mario Brothers 2 doesn't have a score. And so it became very clear that like, these are just people who have finished the game in front of a Twin Galaxies representative. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like that may be one of the only video games I ever beat when I was a kid. I'm not in that. <laughs> I wasn't in that list, was I? Was there a strange man lurking behind you while you played? <laughs> writing down. <laughs> writing down my. No. Okay. They don't have a score? No, not Super Mario Brothers 2 doesn't have a score. You would think they'd have to have some kind of guidelines about trivial records, right? Like, in principle, anything that no one has done, if you do it, you are the world record holder at doing it. Well, that's what's going on with the Guinness Book of World Records. That's why there's all, like, if you ever look through the Guinness Book of World Records now, there are all of these weird, like, you know, most watermelons eaten while juggling and stuff like that. Like, you can just come up with a category. Half of one. <laughs> Yeah, it's not even a lot of watermelon. It's three bites. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that's the only person that ever recorded themselves doing it. And now I think you can pay the Guinness Book of World Records to come out and... Uh... Most money given to the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there's a lot of competition for most world records in Guinness World Records. Oh, Meta World Records. Start, yeah, Meta Meta Records. Most failed attempts? Ooh. Yeah, that's good too. Oh, I, I could win that easy. Holder of the most Guinness World Records, Ashrita has set more than 700 official Guinness World Records since 1979 and currently holds more than 200 standing records, including the official record for the most records held at the same time by an individual for Ashrita Furman. So if you don't count that one, it's really 199. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose so. You get one for free there. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, this is uh, th this this information comes from Ashrita Furman's official website, which is in this kind of like 1970s yellow and orange color. If there are two people tied at 199 records, they could just decide one of them gets to be the holder for the most records, and then they would be true. Wait, say that again? Sorry, I'm looking I'm sorry, I'm watching I'm looking at this thing that's this guy, Ashrita Furman, potato sack racing across the Mongolian desert. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a picture and it's him in a sack and he's running and I and there's a guy on a yak riding next to him, but it looks like he's racing the yak through the desert. <laughs> Most yaks raced through the Mongolian desert. <laughs> World record stands at one. <laughs> Since setting his first record of 27,000 jumping jacks in 1979, Ashrita has broken more than 300 world records overall. What compels this 56-year-old health food, health food store manager from Queens... What you don't you can't make a living doing this? That's so sad. Yeah, he's he's, he's he, at least one person should make money doing this. Like the guy that holds the most records should. I suppose there's like a a huge tie for most records not held. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. So I, so we've got walking on shovels as stilts, fastest mile, <laughs> 24 minutes and 0.25 seconds. Uh, most balloons inflated to eight inches in one hour, 671. <laughs> With his lungs or with a with a tank? Uh, it doesn't say. Slicing potatoes while hopping on a shovel. <laughs> 38 in one minute. I can't even imagine what that is. Underwater cycling, longest distance. Uh, yeah. He's got two records for pogo stick jumping. He must he must do a bunch in batches, right? Like he has two shovels. What can he do with two shovels? Like how many different things? He inherited some shovels from his uncle. <laughs> <laughs> somersaulting longest continuous distance somersaulting in 1986 12 miles i like is somersaulting where you're going forward you're like tucked in a ball and you're rolling forward or is it where you are you're splayed out your arms and legs are splayed out and you're moving and you're rotating to the side over your splayed out arms and legs yeah, sum- somersaulting is the one where you're rotating forward when you're tucked in a ball. Yeah. The second thing you referred to is called a cartwheel. Oh, okay. All right. So I was picturing cartwheeling for 12 miles, which sounds... <laughs> they both sound pretty strenuous, honestly. Yeah. Pogo stick jumping underwater. <laughs> Three hours. Is he taking a breath every time he breaks the surface? Oh, man. Right. Like, I get- I'm picturing, like, deep underwater, but it could be, like... In a pool, right, yeah. He just he just uh, pogo stick jumped until his air ran out in the scuba gear. Carrying a brick with one hand, nine pounds, longest continuous distance, 85 miles. Wow. This answers questions I didn't know I had, like, what's the longest somebody can walk while carrying a brick in their hands? 85 miles, do you think, like, he slept holding the brick? You know, like um, uh, ultra marathoning. I have a friend who's an ultra marathoner where people just run for like 72 hours in a row without sleeping. Oh, right. Yeah. I like the specificity of the parameters. Like that was a nine pound brick. But what if you did it with a four pound brick? <laughs> he would hold a different record. <laughs> if, he, if he's trying to maximize the records he holds at once, he could hold a bunch of different weights of bricks at once. Right, very small weights. And walk 85 miles. Yeah, d- yeah, this could count for two. Uh, you could you could hold the record for two 4.5-pound bricks. You could get really goofy with the parameters, right, and carry 100 marbles and then get the record for carrying one or more marbles, two or more marbles. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Knife catching. Most caught in one minute, 54. Dangerous. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm surprised that Guinness it measures that one publishes that one because they they definitely like will the really dangerous records they don't publish them anymore because they're they're just people hurting themselves trying to get them yeah i wonder how many injuries have been incurred trying to break world records most injuries incurred trying to break world records would be a good record (laughs) i like all these meta records most injuries not incurred trying to break world (laughs) records (laughs) Uh, are you guys ready for another topic? Sure. Let's move on. Uh, so my topic here is my hi- hypothesis, a steadily tedious job becomes more bearable when you procrastinate and then do it in short frenetic bursts. So this was a conversation I had with somebody about um, fish counting, 
about the job of fish counting where it's someone's job to sit and like count the fish that go through. I think it's called the fish stairs or the fish elevator or something like that. Uh, that that t- take transports fish from the bottom to the top of a dam, like salmon that are trying to. Have you seen the fish cannon? That the cannon is a much better word for it. That's what I was trying to think of. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, we're talking about the same thing then. <laughs> so it's this job, this guy's job to like count the fish as they go through. And I was thinking, like, if I had that job, what I would want to do is like like have a video recording. And I would just go about my business and then like every half hour I would come in and play the video at, at a super fast speed and count the fish in the uh, accelerated video. Also because it would be hilarious to see fish. Right. And who doesn't, who doesn't want to, to um, be tickled on the job? And the, having the, um, the fish go faster would be a more interesting task because it would be harder. And then I would also get a longer break between – or I would get a break between counting fish. Um, and you're doing the same work. You're just doing it compressed into a smaller amount of time. And I'm wondering, like, does this idea scale to other kinds of tasks? Well, we could, you know, uh, when we have a hospital full of patients, we could not perform any medicine <laughs> for 10 hours, then <laughs> frantically perform – 10 times as much medicine as we otherwise would in one hour. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, just alternate. I mean, this is uh, this sort of thing, like you, you will take a pill instead of a continuous IV drip. Like those are considered like two options. So <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a real thing even in treating medicine. I'm a real IV drip over a pill kind of a guy. Like yeah, if something is going to happen, I, I want to – apportioned in manageable instances you want a a needle in your arm yeah i just want it to become part of a bearable part of my life rather than a thing that i have to think about some things are just better if they're if they've become routine so you don't have to expend cognitive energy deciding when to do them or how to do them right i think i'm definitely an accelerated fish counter but not because I think that's a better way of doing things, but only because that's how it turns out for me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I uh, Likewise, for um, bad planning reasons, I'm not a good planner. Do you think that's a, like an ADHD thing? Uh, it certainly could be. I don't think so for me. I've just always been bad at planning stuff. I, I, I bought an electric car a while ago, and I it's like a real cheap electric car. And so it can't go very far on a charge. And I bought it thinking to myself, okay, I can get around as long as I plan when I charge my car and this'll make me a better planner is what I thought. But instead I, 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 I'm almost always running out of electricity and like frantically looking at my phone at the app that tells you where the nearest chargers are. And, uh, this has got so bad once that I was, uh, I met a friend across town and I, and uh, leaving this coffee shop where I was, uh, meeting this friend, I realized that my car was just about to run out of batteries. So I had to look at my phone, which told me where the nearest charger was. And I go as quickly as I can through San Francisco to the nearest charger. And, uh, the light that indicates that your car is going to run out of batteries came on the dashboard while I was driving through one of the richest neighborhoods in San Francisco. The light incidentally is the shape of a turtle. So a little turtle comes on your dashboard and it tells you you're going to run out of juice in about a mile and then your car is going to stop. Does that mean you like, does the turtle mean you like slow down first? Yes. 
Yes. And I wish that I had read my user manual because the first time it came on, I was really confused. And then my car turned off. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a warning on my dashboard that's just a picture of the car with a cross through like a no smoking sign. But instead of a cigarette, it's the car itself. And then the car just vanished. (laughs) It came on once and I just stopped my car. Like I pulled over on the side of the road because I was like, I don't know what that means, but it looks bad. And then I looked (laughs) through the manual and it turns out that it just meant that I stopped the charging process too early or something like that. But I, but it looked like it was telling me the car is going to (laughs) explode. Right. Uh So I'm driving through this neighborhood and the turtle light comes on. And so I park my car and I'm like, Oh, what am I going to do? And I'm wandering around this really rich neighborhood and there's a mansion that has a big driveway in front of the mansion and in the driveway is a car charger. Mm-hmm. So I went, I knocked on the door of the mansion and nobody answered. So then I got my car and I backed it into their driveway and I used their car charger for about five minutes. So I had enough juice to drive to the charger. Wow. It's like siphoning gas, but for electricity. Yeah. And I'm sure that they have like a security camera or something. So they probably saw a person like a guy and I tend to dress in like, I I tend to dress like Doctor Who or something, like in three-piece suits. And so they probably saw like a beat-up Nissan Leaf pull into their driveway and then a guy in like a checkered three-piece suit get out and like glance around furtively and then plug his car in and then three minutes later drive away. I hope they just believe they gave they gave electricity to Doctor Who in a time of need. (laughs) (laughs) So can you just plug this thing like into a wall outlet? Uh, you can, you have to have an adapter and it'll take, um, for my car, it would take about eight hours to charge it when it's just plugged into the wall. Uh huh. And then there are special chargers and there are two different kinds. Um, I guess regular chargers that charge, that'll take about four hours to charge the tank all the way, fill the tank, whatever. And, um, there are quick chargers, which take half an hour to get 80% of the way. On my car, there are two different kinds of ports that you can plug into. There's a big one for the supercharger, and there's a small one for the regular charger. Have you tried using both at once? No. <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> but I'm going to, and I will tell you the results, like, if my car catches on fire. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe you should look this up first. Rather nope, than nope. Just... Too late. No. <laughs> All right. Well, like, next, next time you're a guest... On uh, on Topic Lords, you can tell us the story. I'm going to do this just so it, it ensures that I'll be a guest again on Topic Lords. <laughs> Listen, once a lord, always a lord. When you're a lord, you're a lord all the way. <laughs> Will I be getting a certificate in the mail? Uh, so, I decided at one point that I was going to give um, awards, like physical trophies, to um, everyone who had been on the show up to that point. Uh, and so, like, almost nobody's actually received them yet, but I have them in a box sitting behind me, ready to oh distribute as soon as uh, Corona allows us to move about the country. Does my trophy say best effort? <laughs> it just says, it just says topic lord, I'm sorry. I didn't even get a best attitude this time. Well, uh, you, but I tell you what, I could I could give you the, the order form. Uh, I could tell you. <laughs> Tell you how to order. Like, it co- they cost four bucks. These I can award myself a best attitude. Tra- yeah. And this is this is the thing. Like, I I feel like ideally I would give these trophies to literally everybody who's on the show. 
and it's not a matter of money. Like it's like I said, it's like four bucks plus shipping. It's a matter of like going through the hassle of typing all the information into the order form every time. <laughs> and so like when people have like offered to pay for it and I'm like, can you just order it yourself? Like, does that ruin it if if it doesn't come from me? Oh yes, definitely. Shit. I, here's what you could do, though. You can have a you could have a like automatically like a like a form that you send anyone who's been a lord. You send it to them, and they fill out the form. Then you just send it to the trophy place. Yeah. Oh, by the way, like oh, uh, after ordering like twenty of these trophies. Almost every ad I get on the web is now for crownawards.com. <laughs> I have also ordered trophies from crownawards.com. And when you see trophies on social media, they're often from crownawards.com and you can tell. What have That's you, strange. Well, Jesse, what have you had to give trophies for? In order to improve attendance at the like weekly tournaments of the specific kind of Magic the Gathering I like to play, I instituted a system whereby like every four months the person who accumulated the most wins or whatever got a trophy <laughs> so, this is so good because like the the idea to me of being like you get a trophy here fill out your pre-filled like form for the trophy like like we're skating just on the edge of the trophy being completely meaningless <laughs> yeah <laughs> or yeah. like or like delving too deep into what a trophy is till it loses all meaning right yeah so what did this tell us tell us about this trophy did it have a cool figure on the top of it does Crown Awards have like a, a card player figurine? Like a Wrath of God on top of it, maybe? <laughs> they they might, but I thought it was funnier to get fishing ones. Oh, yeah. So they have fish. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's fantastic. Oh, it, Jim, you should do this and you should have it like choose a random trophy somehow so that you. Oh, you, yeah. Just a random figurine on top of every. That is so good. Shit. I, I should have done that this in, for all of these instead of get so what I did was they have one for um like like you won it you won a karaoke contest and so it's a microphone. And I thought oh, that was appropriate good. for like a podcast host. But I actually kind of much better like the idea better of having different figures on top of every trophy just randomly selected. That'd be so good. Now you got to do it. You got to throw all those microphone ones in the trash. Yeah. yeah. And then I can finally get my attitude Ugh. trophy. You know what? Like I can, I can the only I can think of no sadder thing than going online to award myself a best attitude trophy, which is a thing <laughs> like just to be clear, the only I was in karate for like 7 years or something and the only trophy, my dad joined karate with me and became a double black belt and became one of the instructors at the karate school. And the entire time I was in karate, the only trophy I ever got was a trophy from my karate instructor given to me in front of the entire class for best attitude because I had never won anything. Uh, did, did you get any cool belts? Oh, yeah, I got some cool belts. They're all in the closet. You guys ready for another topic? Let's yes. Let's do it. So this is a this is a write-in. Kaz asks your conversation about language changing for people's misunderstandings. Reminded me of how pitted olives have no pits in them, and how inflammable is confusing. So so flammable was coined, which I didn't know. I didn't before this comment. I did not know that uh, the word inflammable came first, and then 
they invented the word flammable to make it very clear, yes, this can light on fire. Oh, wait. So, inflammable is not like indestructible. Inflammable means this can be inflamed. No. This is a famous gag from The Simpsons. Oh, I totally should know it. (laughs) Right. It can be inflamed. Ah, interesting. Like my passions. Yes. Your passions are both flammable and inflammable. And and there's no word for for not being able to be set on fire. Really? Fire resistant, maybe. Yeah, fire resistant, but that's not a that's a phrase. Can we think of other categories of this? Uninflammable. Words words that have changed because of persistent misunderstandings. I mean, there must be a bunch that you wouldn't know because you'd need to know the etymology of the word, right? Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, the the word, um, oh, come back to me. It's a word, it sounds like large, but really it means um, uh, without morality. Oh, the, the enormity. Yeah, the enormity. And I feel like people have consistently been misusing it. And I, I hear more and more learned people talking about the enormity of things and meaning the size. So I feel like... Yeah, I think that's a, that's a that's a good example. I think nowadays people mostly use it to mean largeness. Yeah. Right. I mean, this probably happens a lot, right? Like the word awesome or the word terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Awesome now means very good and terrible means very bad, but really they meant things that inspired awe or terror. Right. Yeah. Right. I feel that way about it. if you ever look in the OED, the word nice seems to oh, yeah. reverse its meaning every hundred years. And like, it, oh, weird. yeah, like it started off meaning like, I think it started off meaning dumb. Like he's a little nice. And then it's, and then it switched to meaning like sharp edged or something. And it like, it seems to go back and forth and it, I feel like it must be because it's just really easy to use that word sarcastically. Like half the time anybody uses the <laughs> word nice. It's like nice. You know, and like oh, yeah. eventually yeah, yeah. that will become the meaning, but then people will use it sarcastically to mean it's opposite again. And it'll just like swap back and forth between those two meanings over the next 300 years. There's also the sense where it's just an automatic exclamation after encountering the number 69. I wonder if that will ever make it into the OED. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a tag to indicate that someone used that 69 or 420. Right. In the previous exactly. sentence. <laughs> Wait, uh so what about other words that mean they're they're like pitted uh So there's a word for this, they're called auto antonyms. Let's see what the internet knows about them. One of you guys had a really good example when we were previously discussing this. Oh right. I had I had exactly the same conversation about pitted olives essentially at my workplace a few days ago about the word shelled. Shelled and shelled and unshelled, yeah. Right. Shelled peanuts don't have shells on them because someone has shelled them using right. the verb to shell, which means to remove the shell. Likewise, uh, husk for corn. Right, right. And we've talked on this previous episodes of this podcast, We, I believe we've talked about how pantsed and unpantsed are used the same way. <laughs> that's, that is, that's my favorite example. <laughs> <laughs> I have a story about about um, corn husks and, and husking. All right, let's hear it. So um, I went to a sort of alternative hippie um, grade school. And in this grade school, we took a lot of field trips. And 
when you take lots of field trips, you start in California, you start going to the same places over and over again, or like the same kinds of places. And there are actually a lot of places in Northern California where it's a, it's, they're recreating what life on a farm used to be like, or like life on a, uh, life for like settlers and stuff. And one thing they do is they take you to the outhouse and somebody inevitably asks what they did before toilet paper. And the answer was always, um, corn, you use corn husks. And I, I would say I was in about 25 and I was at a farmer's market and, um, there are all of these ears of corn and or you husk the corn before you buy it. Cause there might be worms in it. And as I'm husking this corn, I hold a corn cob in one hand and a corn husk in the other hand. And I suddenly realized that all this time I have been thinking of corn cobs and not corn husks. Oh no. <laughs> and oh, yeah. It suddenly makes so much more sense to me using corn husks as toilet paper. And I say out loud, ah, corn husks. <laughs> the person I'm with is like, what do you mean? And then I go through this whole explanation and I'm like, I guess I just always pictured people using corn cobs, like pipe cleaners, maybe or something like, I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure I made that same mistake and never thought about it again until just now. Yeah. So here are a list of auto antonyms, courtesy of Wikipedia, the free encyclopedia. It does not actually have that many. Uh, alight, appropriate, bound, sight, cleave, clip, conclude, dust, fast, impregnable, let, left, off, overlook, oversight, ravel, sanction, and table. I can't imagine how some of them are used. Uh, do you yeah, have like I one? feel like I don't know how conclude can mean anything but to end something. Wikipedia alleges that conclude can mean to start a contract or to end something. Huh. Oh, perhaps because you conclude negotiations or something? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Oh, so that you, when you conclude negotiations, you, you, that's the start of a contract. Right. You have concluded the contract, which means it's now starting. That's, <laughs> that's so confusing. Table is interesting because it, in the parliamentary context, it has opposite meaning in the U.S., Versus every Westminster style parliament, where right, yeah, tabling something in the U.S. I think means to not discuss it, yeah, or it does, means to to discuss it. Something I, f I forget which is which, but it's reversed. Uh, here right. in the in the um, related uh, section, we have the we have skunked term, which is a word that becomes difficult to use because it is transitioning from one meaning to another. Perhaps inconsistent or even opposite usage. Uh, awesome. Skunked? Yeah. Skunked term. Most famously, probably literally these days. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually like one of the only ones that I think is a good example that they give. Like one example is decimate, which originally meant to kill one in 10, but right. now has been interpreted as destroy. And that just means destroy now. Like, yeah, that one has finished its transition. Yeah, I feel like it's been a long time. You don't hear old people complaining about the misuse of the word decimate. Right. Yeah, and there, there are a bunch of other examples that I think suck, except for literally, which now means figuratively. But, like, I think it's, mean, it's, it's meant that for a long time, frankly. Like, I think there are examples of people using literally, not literally, going back centuries. 
This reminds me a little bit of um, one of my favorite weird little grammar facts about English, and that is that the term farther has a different vowel in its metaphorical sense, further. Wait, say, say again? So farther is a word for comparing distance, but metaphorical distance is compared with the word further. Uh. I think I agree with that. I think that's how I would use them. But I, I think that's the only pair of words like that in English. I could be wrong. But. Yeah, that's a strange example. That's that's interesting. I like that. That's very interesting. This is all on a weird theoretical plane to me since I have dyslexia and can't spell anything. <laughs> Are you guys ready for another topic? Yes, please. All right, Ava, your topic theory, humans are unconsciously driving the evolution of some kinds of small birds toward cuter features and behaviors. The uh, background to this is there's an actual example of this kind of driving, unconsciously selecting for certain features in animals in Japan. There's a, a spider crab called Hiakagani. It's a spider crab that the markings on its back sort of look like the face of a samurai. Right. Yeah. I've heard about this. Yeah. And they happen to be in a, in a part of Japan where, uh, there was a famous, um, uh, incident where a bunch of samurai sunk themselves on a boat to do the honorable samurai thing. And right, the battle of Don no Ura. Yeah. Are we all looking at this Wikipedia page or no, I just know that. Really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, I don't know. There was a big shift in the Japanese caste system because of this battle, I think. I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> I only know of this battle because of these crabs. <laughs> I would be I would be so happy to hear more about this. Um, so the the deal with the crabs is uh, people don't didn't eat them because they have sort of a samurai face on their back. But then people would eat the ones that didn't that looked less like samurai. And now uh, the resemblance to samurai faces on their backs is pretty striking uh, because we accidentally selectively bred, we being the Japanese, accidentally selectively bred uh, for a very specific look in these crabs. And so I have this theory that we're doing the same thing in cities to like extra cute little birds that like birds that are begging for crumbs outside of your coffee shops you're feeding the the cuter ones get more food and get uh, have a better chance of survival and so we're slowly like breeding for birds that hop a little bit more and like cock their head in a specific way and have like big cuter heads yeah and and also like trust humans yeah yeah i feel like i've heard that this has happened in cats really so i don't know if this is true but supposedly uh cats cry at around the same frequency as human babies because humans have a really strong response to that particular sort of pitch well my understanding at least is that um adult cats that are that are not that are no longer kittens and are not around humans don't meow they don't have that kind of call that's something oh, that, interesting like that 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 adult cats that are pets are basically infantilized because we find that cuter or we're more likely to pay attention because it sounds like a baby crying or whatever. Yeah. That makes sense, yeah. I remember reading about evolution in like a textbook in school or whatever. There's 
there used to be these moths in England around the time of the Industrial Revolution, and they were they used to be some were white and some were gray, and then ash and soot from the smokestacks of these new factories covered this forest in soot, and so the white ones stood out against the trees, and the birds ate all of them. Oh right, yeah. Now all those moths are gray. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, very neat. All right, we got time for one more topic, um, probably. Uh, Jesse, your topic here is the Please Call Stella Accent Database. It has some other name, but if you just Google the phrase, Please Call Stella, you will find it. It's this database of recordings of people speaking a certain paragraph that I guess is designed to catch all of the categorical differences between English accents, which I think is kind of neat. And it records a bunch of information about the person, like... Were they a native English speaker? Do they speak any other languages? How old are they? Where do they live? These kinds of things. Uh, and I thought this was interesting in the context of podcasting because if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you inevitably listen to podcasts recorded by people who have a different accent from yours, which happens to me all the time because I'm from Canada and you know there are all little differences between the way I would say some words and the way that the American podcasters I listen to say them. And so uh, I thought it was interesting that this, you know, this database has been carefully designed to try to capture all of those differences, right? So here's the paragraph. Please call Stella. Ask her to bring these things with her from the store. Six spoons of fresh snow peas, five thick slabs of blue cheese, and maybe a snack for her brother, Bob. We also need a small plastic snake and a big toy frog for the kids. She can scoop these things into three red bags, and we will go meet her Wednesday at the train station. I am so sure that I've heard that paragraph before, but I could not have placed it like its purpose. Oh, there you go. It's sort of, it reminds me of um, Sphinx of Black Quartz, Judge My Vow. Yeah. And, right? But it's for for accents instead of for just including all the letters. Right, yeah. And it, interestingly, this database also includes most of the time a really detailed transcription of the recording in the International Phonetic Alphabet. Yeah. So it allows you, even if you don't really understand IPA, you can compare two and see what the differences are visually, which is interesting. Yeah, that's neat. Is that something that you uh, you have fluency in? Can you look at IPA and pronounce it? Uh, more or less, although these are, wow. these are very... Uh, it's unusual it, it, when writing an IPA to make distinctions that aren't important for understanding mm -hmm. but in this case you you do need to do that right so they're they're very technical transcriptions which is not usually the way ipa is used how are these collected are these like people in the street interviews or uh i'm not sure it looks like the the database is run by a university english department i i bet it's grad students right right yeah, yeah. and in, indeed if you go to the about page the credits is a giant list of names of grad students <laughs> all right that's really interesting it reminds me of uh the there's a whole database of appalachian culture and there's a section of that that's people speaking in appalachian english like recordings of appalachian english right um which i used to just listen to because you never hear that you never hear that kind of diction or uh that sort of accent mm -hmm. right and a lot of them are kind of endangered, right? Like yeah. reg regional accents are all mostly fading away as television and 
you know, the internet and radio and so on pulls everyone toward a Midwestern American accent. Right. Right. Yeah. At least, at least in North America. We've got to start inventing new accents to distinguish ourselves. There used to be a set like my paternal uh, grandmother had what she claimed was a San Francisco accent, um, which sort of sounded like this, <laughs> which which I I did not find to be the most charming accent, actually. <laughs> uh-huh. Are you sure that's just not just like how she happened to speak? I am not. I She might have had a really particularly... Um, well, she's she's gone. Grading way of speaking. Uh, yeah, she's uh, not going to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> or if she is, there's not much she can do. Take that, the dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, she might have just had a really particularly grading way of speaking and blamed it on being from San Francisco. <laughs> one, one thing that stands out to me that I, I think it, it comes up on video game podcasts sometimes is there's this game that starts with dragons. I think that the name of the game is supposed to be a pun based on the identical pronunciation of two words by most Americans that sound different for me. So I never, I always get really frustrated listening to people say the name of the game. Uh, So frustrated that you yourself don't want to say the name. I'm trying not to prime you, right? Uh, Can you just spell it out? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's spelled D-R-A-G-O-N apostrophe S space. L A I R. Oh yeah, Dragon Slayer. There are two. There are two games though, right? <laughs> Is there a game called Dragon Slayer and a game called Dragon's Lair? Right. So for me, those those would sound different. I would say Dragon's Lair and Dragon Slayer. Yeah, I feel like I pronounce them differently as well. They sounded pretty similar to me when you when you spoke just now. Yeah, I feel like I can never tell which one people are talking about, and subsequently, I can't remember which is the one that came. Uh, as a as a Blu-ray game. You mean Laserdisc? L- Laserdisc, not Blu-ray. Jesus. The, right. <laughs> that's the a, giant that's a Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which was the Laserdisc game? Dragon's Lair. Dragon's Lair. Which was, right. uh, is it Ralph Bakshi that made that? I mean, the name I associated with is Don Bluth. No, oh, Don Bluth, not Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the... One of the Different famous animator. Dragon Slayer is the name of several games, but none of them are like famous. None of them are ones that you'd ever like talk about to a, like a regular person. So that, and by which I mean the one where you, the the one that means killing a dragon, right? <laughs> but killing a dragon—that's a famous. Uh, that's a famous game. <laughs> but uh, so I I I feel like these are two distinct words for me. But I, also I have confused them in conversation with people so like, oh, interesting maybe you hear a difference in your own speech but others don't hear, you know everyone hears them differently when they speak them themselves but hears them the same hearing them yeah yeah i can never tell it dragon slayer versus dragon's lair unless i'm being very unless i'm being very uh mindful i pronounce them the same i used to do this with uh i worked at a coffee shop for a very long time and i had a lot of fun shouting out people's orders and <laughs> I would, I got to the point where I would say an entire order all in one. Like it'd be like cappuccino on the bar uh-huh. and people stopped coming to pick up their orders because they like a, like a soda jerk. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or uh, there's a kind of traveling junk dealer in the UK known as a rag and bone man. Yeah. And they have, they all Ooh. have these like famous distinctive calls 
I guess the idea is that they like 300 years ago or whatever started out yelling rag and bone, but it got so like muddled and they all muddled it differently that every rag and bone man now has a different way of yelling rag and bone. Are there still rag and bone men in the UK? I have no idea. Uh, it's so it's closely related to like um, to carnival barking and stuff like that. Right, right. I think the the British TV show that the American TV show Sanford and Son was based on was about a rag and bone man and his son. Huh. So I guess they still had them in the seventies. Wow, I had a I had a CD for a long time of recordings of people doing carnival barking that I memorized like pitches from it and could rattle wow. off as though I were uh, reciting, like singing a song or something. <laughs> what is the market for that CD? How are they making money? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been able to find it since. So that might tell you something. <laughs> Very few people are interested in like field recordings of carnival barkers from the fifties. You got to get that on discogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I, th- I think I lost it. Um, and I've tried to find them again on, it seems like there must be some, some academic archive, like we have been talking about the catalogs, stuff like that. But really the only person that I can think of that was interested in that stuff was Ricky Jay. He, who is a, who was a famous, uh, magician. magician? Yeah. He was a magician and, uh, kind of scholar of the history of magic tricks and variety entertainment and freak shows and stuff like that. And he published uh, something called Jay's Journal of Anomalies, which had like histories of certain kinds of carnival, like pitches, stuff like that. But he, he passed away last year. I think it's interesting that professional wrestling, despite being this like huge multi-million dollar entertainment property run by one company effectively now, maintains some kind of weird 19th century carnies. Yes. Yeah. Like that, it somehow survived all the way, you know? And like there's and the, a character like The Undertaker or something where like they went back and forth on his background, but at some point they had like a whole th- system worked out for him where he had a manager and he got his, his magic powers from an urn and he <laughs> had to like go and recharge from the urn and you had all these sports announcers being like, there he, he's going back to his urn. That's where he gets his unearthly power from. And he'd be, he'd be like <laughs> fighting Hulk Hogan, but he'd still be channeling his dark energy from this urn. Right. Right. Some of the people he's fighting against their story is they are a wrestler. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And his is, <laughs> he's maybe a zombie or something? <laughs> it's very unclear. Did you ever watch uh, WMAC Masters? No. This was a television show from the 90s, I think, that was sort of like professional wrestling, except it was martial arts. And during the fights, there were health bars on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing to me. I think it's a, a great artifact of the... That's incredible. Bruce Lee's daughter was the hostess of the show, oh, I think. I have to look for this. I'm sure they're on YouTube. It's like uh, the XFL, where yeah. <laughs> it's kind of... Oh. Aren't they bringing that back? Yeah, I think I heard that, yeah. Donald Trump is president. He owned an XFL team. I don't remember much about XFL and its original incarnation, except that like they had cameramen on the field, like running around. Oh, wow. And Kiss owned 
an XFL team and it was like a kiss themed XFL team. <laughs> right. All I remember is that I think I remember that instead of a coin flip, you they just raced to the ball in the center of the field. <laughs> so good. Like they tried to make they tried to take elements of gridiron football that are boring and like make them more exciting again. <laughs> right, yeah. And there's one member of the team that's just a sprinter. That's uh, let's say it's like a monster truck. I was having a conversation a few weeks ago with somebody about how there are still monster truck rallies and some of the original monster trucks. The only two that I remember, which is Gravedigger, which is like if Undertaker were a truck and Bigfoot, <laughs> which is like if Hulk Hogan were a truck and they're, and they're still around. Do you remember Slam Ball? No. Was that was that an event on American Gladiators? I don't think so. I, we didn't have that show here, uh, as you can imagine from the name. But uh, Canada is still America, though. You're in Canada in a broad sense. I am in Canada. <laughs> this whole time uh, we've been talking to a Canadian. That's correct. So Slam Ball. I mean, it could have been on that show based on what I know about that show. But uh, <laughs> it's it was like the rules were like hockey, but it was. You played with a basketball, and the the arena, I guess you would call it, is had like trampolines built into the floor. <laughs> so you and and I guess the nets were really high or whatever, and so you would have to you know trampoline jump up to the net to dunk it. <laughs> that's that's oh, very okay. good. It sounds very American to me, which is like we took your <laughs> we took your regular <laughs> basketball and we made it more extreme. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I hope this is on YouTube so we can put it in the show notes and also so I can enjoy it. Uh, but um, we're out of time. Thanks so much for being on. That was fun. Thanks for having me. I feel like you've already answered this, Jesse, but if 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 uh, you want people to find you on the internet, where can they find you? I suppose I have a Twitter account. I don't necessarily recommend that you follow it, but the username is the Fring thing spelled T-H-E-F-R-I-N-G T-H-I-N-G All right, and uh, Avery, if this is something you want, where can people find you on the internet? Bandcamp. I mean, I have a Facebook page, but yeah, you know, I check my Facebook page once a month and usually there are people asking me to play a show somewhere and I haven't responded. Um, So be one of those people. (laughs) All right. And uh, now now we just kind of sit around until one of us thinks of a good way to end the show. Uh, uh, do we say a thing? Is there a... How do, how do shows end? I don't remember. If you meet a topic on the road, kill it. Hi, this is Jim. This is the audio I append to every episode of Topic Lords. Congratulations to our newly anointed lords. If you'd like more people to hear the show, you can tell your friends about it or rate and review us on whatever podcast service you use. You can add content to the Topic Bucket by emailing topicbucket at topiclords.com. You can contribute to our Patreon at patreon.com slash topiclords. Patrons get episodes a week early, and you get access to the Topic Lords Discord, where you can discuss topics with all the lords that hang out in there. See you next episode!